Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. Uh, I really think that this passage that we're going to look at today will be really instructive for us, even in this, even in this moment in the life of this church, in God's mission here. Uh, what does he want us to do? What does he want from us? Where are we looking? How are we operating uh, what's actually going on here? We've seen already in um, Isaiah, at the very beginning, chapter 1, we see he just introduces who he is uh, very, very briefly. He says, I'm Isaiah, and um, this is like God's judgment or God's case against his people in, uh, in Israel, in Jerusalem, uh, and in all of Judea. And then we see <clears throat> Isaiah's vision of the glory of God and his commissioning there, like the amazing um, scene of Jesus on his throne. New Testament tells us that was Jesus that Isaiah met there. Then we have like just chapters of judgment and judgment and death and destruction and also hope and mercy and God's salvation and him coming for his people um, over and over and over and over again. Heaps of mentions pointing to Jesus, pointing to this Messiah who would come, pointing to the, the Holy One, the one that God would send actually to bring all of these promises and this future hope to fruition. Uh, <clears throat> we looked at um, Isaiah and his prophetically named sons, which is, I mean, <laughs> in the Old Testament, even in this, these passages we'll see today, we're not actually focusing on it, but there's one um, place in our chapters today where Isaiah himself, he goes for three years as naked as is like, publicly appropriate, uh, even less, less so. So down to his underwear, basically, barefoot for three years to prophetically show how God would save his people from uh, an Egyptian army. Uh, basically saying, like I am now, naked and shoeless and unarmed is how the Egyptian army will go back with their tail between their legs to Egypt and not rout us. And so uh, everything about Isaiah's life, even his name, the names of his kids, uh, a remnant shall remain. Um, hasten to the spoils, all speak prophetically uh, from God, from the Holy Spirit, to his people. Then, like last week, we saw an amazing glimpse of what the resurrection will look like, what it means for us, uh, the new heaven and the new earth, and um, just the, the wondrousness of that, uh, and, and what that means for us even today, just phenomenally. Uh, and today... In these chapters, chapters 13 to 23, 11 chapters, uh, things change pretty dr- dramatically in, in, one, in one way. We still see heaps of judgment, heaps of judgment throughout these 11 chapters. Like, I mean a lot. If you read through this, in some translations, it is striking language. It, it is, um, <clears throat> oh man, might need to come with a trigger warning for some. It's, it's a stark 10 chapters. And basically what we see is uh, 10 oracles or 10 sermons or 10 speeches, all pronouncements against various tribes and nations. So Israel, like we looked at in the last couple of weeks, had already been divided into two kingdoms. The kingdom of the south with two tribes, the kingdom of the north with 10 tribes. About 20 years before <clears throat> um, Isaiah came on the scene, the whole northern kingdom was routed and, and really taken, captured. 
And so we had this southern kingdom now surrounded, <clears throat> oh, excuse me, surrounded by enemies. And these, I mean, sometimes they're enemies, sometimes they're friends, sometimes they're like frenemies, where we won't attack you if you give us stuff, or, hey, these guys are going to attack us, so why don't you tell them that you'll also attack them if they attack us, but you don't need to actually attack them. Um, all kinds of just, like, imagine high school, uh, if they had text messages back then, it would have been amazing. Um, this is what we're looking at at, the, at this time in the geopolitical landscape in the time of Isaiah. There are oracles from chapters 13 to 23 against Babylon, against Assyria, against Philistia, the Moabites, Damascus, Ethiopia, the Egyptians, Assyrians, uh, Arabia, um, Shenba, Tyre, and even Jerusalem itself, maybe sarcastically called the Valley of Vision because they had none. And then, last of all, all nations. So just in case you think some obscure nation over here, like the Edomites or somebody else, the Hittites, although they were largely dealt with by then, uh, if you think that you escaped because he didn't have an oracle for you from Isaiah, <clears throat> he then just says, well, everybody, all nations, everybody, here's what I have against you guys. If you are familiar with the book of Revelation, uh, you'll know Jesus actually himself authors. John writes them down as Jesus dictates these letters, seven letters to seven churches. And he says, this is what I have against you guys. This is, this is the problem. And here's what will happen. And you, you see one by one, each of those actually letters to churches, in this case nations, in that case churches, you see one by one, these things historically actually happening. So in um, like Acts 19, you see the church in Ephesus doing amazing things, radically transformed, like amazingly transformed. Um, they're throwing all of their idols and, and books to be burnt, 50,000 pieces of silver worth, a radical transformation in the city. Thanks, man. What a legend. Um, Radical transformation in the city, uh, people doing amazing things, and then a letter to them saying, hey, you've got to come back to your first love. Come back and do what you did at first. They don't, and whew, it's the last year here at the church in Ephesus. And what we're seeing here is very similar letters or oracles spoken to these various nations. And you might be thinking, <clears throat> hang on, I get it when there's letters to the churches because churches, they were people who were, they were God's people, right? But only, only the Israelites and the, Jew, the Jewish like people in Judah, I thought they were God's people. What, what's to do with all these other nations? Why is God warning these other nations or pronouncing judgment on these other nations? It doesn't seem to make sense. And this is where we pick up uh, our, well, we've got to get into some scripture. That's where we pick it up today. <clears throat> And to give you like the big idea straight up front so you can see as you read through some scripture, because if we were to read even just the texts that we're going to cover today, it would take up all of the time we have for the sermon, plus a lot. So obviously we won't be able to read through all of this today. But here's the big idea. Uh, it's a warning specifically to God's people about looking to other nations, other ideologies for their salvation and for their rescue even looking to themselves for their own rescue, to their own wisdom, to their own good ideas and good thinking. What we've seen thus far for, uh, well, for about 10 chapters before we see the new heavens and new earth, we see judgment on God's people uh, for this exact thing. They have forgotten God. They've forgotten him. They keep him as like a, a consultant on retainer. 
We can go to him when we're in desperate need, but when we're not in desperate need, we'll just keep to our own selves. The, the northern kingdom that I said about 20 years earlier, maybe 25 years earlier, had been routed in the generation before that 20, 25 years under Jeroboam II, they had one of the most um, prosperous generations in the history of the Jewish people. Peaceful times, prosperous times, fruitful times. And yet, it's during that time they forget about God. Anyway, that's their warning in chapter 20. Uh, this is how he talks about, we'll start in chapter 13. This is how he talks about the judgment coming on Babylon. He says, Wail, for the day of Yahweh is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, everyone's hands will become weak. Every man will lose heart. They will be horrified. Pain and agony will seize them. They'll be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look at each other, their faces flushed with fear. Look, the day of Yahweh is coming. Cruel with rage and burning anger to make the earth a desolation and to destroy its sinners. Indeed, the stars of the sky and its constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shine. I'll punish the world for its evil and wicked people for their iniquities. There, there are, there's not like two different ways to take this. You can't say, ah, oh, yeah, like God promised all this judgment, but it's not really going to be that bad, right? No, this is a cosmic event. Like even the stars aren't going to shine. Uh, the, like creation's turning against these people. And he goes on, I will put an end. What does he want to do? What's his goal in this? What's his aim? I'll put an end to the pride of the arrogant and humili- humiliate the insolence of tyrants. This is what God is doing to people of Babylon. And here's the thing. Babylon, in the time of the writing, is not even a word power yet. Babylon, in the time of writing, <clears throat> it's just uh, Babylon, like the city itself, for sure, has some like sacred, religious, kind of mystic value to the people, but it's not an empire, not like the Assyrian Empire at the time. Babylon, I mean, Babylon, Babylon's routed and rerouted and trashed and, um, I mean, all, all kinds of things in the lead-up to this being said. It's not yet a world power, and yet, speaking even before the pride comes, God tells them what's going to happen. What are they being judged for, and we'll see these same things that Babylon's being judged for echoed throughout the other oracles. They're being judged for their pride, for their arrogance, for insolence, for their evil, for their wicked ways, and their sinfulness. These are the things that Babylon is going to be judged for. That's why all these things are coming. That's why God says to them, wail. What a way to start a speech. All of these oracles would have been spoken and then written down later. Here, Babylon wail. Start to cry and weep loudly for what's coming. Uh, It's a stern warning. Here's another reminder to Damascus this time, uh, Isaiah 17. You'll hear similarities, and this is where we want to land, on these similarities. Uh, Isaiah 17, verse 10. You've forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, Though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. Incurable pain. That's a, oh man, that's, again, that's one of those, like, you you can't kind of twist that. There's no, like, PR agent who's going to come around and say, oh, incurable pain, 
what he really means is just a boo-boo. That's not going to be that bad. Uh, no, no, he's saying, man, there'll be no more food. There'll be incurable pain, a day of grief. Uh, back to Isaiah 17, on his own people in Israel, from verse 10, you have forgotten the God of your salvation. Again, this word forgotten is coming up again and again. You've forgotten the God of your salvation and you failed to remember the rock of your strength. Therefore, you will plant beautiful plants and set up cuttings from exotic vines. On the day that you plant, you'll help them grow and in the morning you'll help your seed to sprout, but the harvest will vanish on the day of disease and again, incurable pain. Oh, that was the same one. There we go. This is the real sin. Uh, this is the real rebellion that these people are being judged for. It's for having forgotten God. And we'll see this throughout these um, oracles. You're being judged because of your arrogance, because of your pride, because you've forgotten God. And in reality, I mean, uh, Augustine said pride, the sin of pride, is the sin that's pregnant with all other sin. Pride is, you cannot be proud and a friend of God. Pride is the thing that God, throughout Scripture, is constantly against because any kind of pride disorders our perspective of who we are and who God is. This is what pride does. Pride twists us. It's only out of pride that we can forget. It's out of pride that God's own people have forgotten Him. It's out of pride that they have gone, well, look how wealthy we are. Look how rich we are. Look how peaceful we are. And if people come up against us and the Assyrians who are growing in might, they come against us, we'll just pay them out of our excess, a tribute to stay away from us and not to come and kill us. Look how amazing we are. It's pride that is pregnant with arrogance. Pride that's pregnant with insolence. Pride that leads to wickedness. Pride that leads to their forgetfulness. And this is the same thing that he says to all of these other nations. You know Assyria? Uh, Assyria is <clears throat> the capital, or the, the like, center of Assyria in this day was a city called Nineveh. Now Nineveh, if you grew up in Sunday school, you will know Nineveh was the place that Jonah did not want to go to. Jonah, God said to Jonah, go to Nineveh, to the Assyrians, and say to Nineveh, Repent. Otherwise, in 40 days, like Sodom and Gomorrah, you're going to be dealt with. Go on. I wish that sounded more epic. I can't do it. I need some water. I won't have water just to do that sound effects. And so, this would have been, there would have been people alive in the time of Jonah in Nineveh, still alive in the time of this oracle. People in Nineveh who Jonah eventually went to and proclaimed God's mercy towards them if they would just repent. Up to that point, Assyria had been a growing world power, just going from conquest to conquest to conquest to conquest, expanding their borders, becoming an empire. Uh, to the point where the northern tribes of, Jew, of um, Israel, they started, they were essentially a part of this empire, paying tribute to um, be protected and, and not be routed by the Assyrians. And Jonah goes up there and says, no, no, you've got to repent, repent. And he was the least willing prophet in maybe the history of God's people 
Uh, I imagine him walking around the streets of Nineveh saying, you've got to repent, you've got to repent, make sure you repent. Because these were people who were strong and wicked and fearless and fearsome. He didn't want them to repent. He didn't want God to show mercy to them because of their wickedness, and yet they do repent. Ash and sackcloth in repentance. And for a generation, you don't hear about Assyrian conquest. You don't hear about Assyrians going out and and brutally murdering and sacking places because they're living in repentance. But then, just after three kings, within one person's lifetime, here they are again, being chastised for forgetting the God who delivered them from the wrath against their sin. It's the sin of pride that leads to the sin of forgetfulness. But pride is the soil and it's the root from which all of our sin grows. <clears throat> Israel, pride, they're saying, look how good we're doing, look how great we're doing. We can rest on our own laurels. In fact, um, he has a go. In fact, he has a go of them here in Isaiah 22. <clears throat> pride has led them to forget God and trust in themselves. This is what it says, Isaiah 22. He, as God, has taken away the covering of even Judah. In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. Did they look to God? No, they looked to the weapons. Verse 9. And you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool. So they, they, they know what to do. They collected up water. Verse 10. And you counted the houses of Jerusalem and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. So they got really strategic. They got their architects together. And they said, now we need to fortify the wall because Assyria is coming. Syria is coming. Egypt's coming. Ethiopia might be coming. The Syrians are coming. Uh, they don't even know yet, but Babylon is coming. We need to fortify the walls. We have this many houses. If we break this much stuff down, we can put it up on the wall. Super strategic, but trusting in their own devices. Verse 11, you made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. Saying, man, look at all the stuff that you did. Look at all, like, from, for any other nation, in any other circumstance, you look at this and say, well, that's just wisdom, right? They're just doing the smart thing, like people are coming against them and they're, they're drawing up plans and they're counting what they have and their resources and putting it all together. Here comes the but in verse 11. But <clears throat> you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. In that, in that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth, so shaving your head, and wearing sackcloth, and weeping, and mourning. He goes on, and behold, joy and gladness. He says, I called for weeping, and mourning, and repentance, but what are you doing? You're celebrating. Killing oxen, and slaughtering sheep, eating in flesh, eating flesh, and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So they see the approaching hordes, and they say, well, we're done for. Let's just have a big, big, big party. And tomorrow we're dead. The Lord of hosts, verse 14, has revealed himself in many ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord God, says Yahweh of hosts. Pride forgets our need for God. That's what pride does. 
Pride is uh, it's insidious. And pride, uh, pride kind of worms its way into our individual hearts and into our collective hearts. And even in Australia, pride is, is a virtue. We're told, well, we should be proud. We should encourage and foster our sense of pride. And if we look to these oracles against nation after nation after nation, and then all nations, some of these oracles have happened, some of these oracles are going to happen. Uh, we see, man, pride is not your friend, pride is your enemy. Pride is your mortal enemy, actually. Pride leads to a twisting of your perspective of who you are and your need for God. Pride forgets our desperate need for God. Pride makes us forget that our next breath depends on God. <clears throat> I've been challenged recently uh, reading the Puritans who, morning and evening, like before going to bed, they would pray, actually earnestly, not just by rote, but pray earnestly that they would wake up in the morning and then earnestly thank God when they did, if they did, wake up in the morning for the day that they had. Earnestly. Because they were trying to combat pride in their individual lives and in their community. And so God here in these 11 chapters shows them the end of their prideful desires. He says, if you want to live in pride, this is where it's going. You want to be prideful? Uh, Babylon, in chapter 14, verse 13, says, Babylon says, I will ascend, I will go up. And then God says, no, no, you'll be brought down to Sheol, to the place of the dead. You want to lift yourself up? God will bring you down. He'll show you the end. He'll show you the natural, like, uh, reductio ad absurdum, like the, the natural progression, the end, the terminus of pride is death and destruction. And so God shows them that so that they wouldn't completely die. And I'll show you how this works in a minute. <clears throat> when you see God, firstly, as a righteous judge, uh, how, how, can, how can I say that God's wrath, God's judgment here, leads to their good? How can, how can anyone say that God, who is not just a God of love, God isn't just, uh, love isn't just one of God's characteristics, but love is defined by who God is. So God is love. That's what, that's what God is. And our definition of love comes from God. Not, it's not one of his characteristics. God is love. Everything he does is loving. And you look at that <clears throat> passage about the Babylonians and you go, how can we possibly reconcile the fact that God is a loving God and yet he's also a wrathful God? How do those things work together? Uh, Tim Keller says like this, God's wrath flows from his love. God's wrath flows from his love and delight in his creation. He's angry at evil and injustice because it destroys its peace and integrity. He's angry at evil and injustice because it destroys its peace and integrity. Uh, I think that when we look at something like this that happened 2,700 years ago, uh, we might look back and go, well, I mean, look at the death and the destruction and how could we possibly say that this God is a God of love? But the more proximate injustice happens to you, the more 
you will call for justice. The, the more, uh, so when things happen to our nation, maybe, uh, to Australia, you might go, well, that's an injustice. We, you know, we need to, we need to demand justice. Uh, something happens in our city or to our city, something happens to your family, you might go, what? This, here is something that maybe ordinarily I could overlook, but now that it's happened to me, uh, we need to pursue justice in this manner. <clears throat> uh, I've got a quote here from a, a bloke called Miroslav Wolf, and uh, if you were at the Glenelg service this morning, it's a different one, coincidentally, from the same guy. This is what he says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of worship, is what he says. He's a guy who lived through significant, this is a guy who's still alive, lived through significant injustice. Like, uh, amazingly, even in his own city that he saw phenomenal injustice. Um, I've spoken before about my mate, um, Shedrek, who lived in um, the Ivory Coast, and routinely, marauders would come into his village um, and the next village that he would escape to, they'd you know, eventually get there and they'd come through with machetes and they'd say, well, we want to be gracious, so would you like a long sleeve or a short sleeve? And that's where they would chop off people's arms. And, he's, and from... In fact, I'm going to read the quote. <clears throat> My thesis, Miroslav says, so the practice uh, will be unpopular with many Christians, especially in the West, to the person who's inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, then leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, this modern Western theory will invariably die. What he's saying is this the more peaceful, the more tranquil, the more removed from war you are, the, the least likely you are to see God's judgment coming from his love. But if we didn't live in peaceful times like we do now, if we certainly, if we lived in the time of Isaiah, where pretty much every nation is under constant threat from nations around them, and the threat of war, the threat of disease, the threat of like, just treasonous acts that happened over and over and over again, uh, we would not be so unfamiliar with justice and judgment stemming from love. But I also want you to hear that by God sending this judgment on these people, on these nations, it's not just punitive. It's not just vengeance. It's also restorative. We've seen this with Isaiah already. Um, Isaiah calls one of his kids a remnant will remain even though the forest of Israel and Judah will be cut down, there will be a remnant. And out of the stump of Jesse we saw last week, um, a shoot will come, the Messiah. Like there's, there's still hope. There's still hope coming. God is cleansing his people. This is what he said to Egypt. <clears throat> the land of Judah will terrify Egypt. Whenever Judah is mentioned, Egypt, Egypt will tremble because of what the Lord of hosts has planned against it. On that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear loyalty to the Lord of hosts. One of the cities will be called the city of the sun. 
On the day that the, on that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the center of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord near the border. It'll be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and a leader and he will rescue them. The Lord, verse 21, will make himself known to Egypt and Egypt will know the Lord on that day. Here we have traditionally an enemy of the people of God and here in the midst of these oracles of coming judgment, there's also this restoration. The Lord will make himself known to Egypt and Egypt will know the Lord on that day. They will offer sacrifices and offerings. They'll make vows to the Lord and fulfill them. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. This, in this very verse here, we see these 11 chapters condensed to one verse. He will strike and he will heal. Actually, in some cases, he will heal. But ultimately, he will heal. They will return to the Lord and he will hear their prayers and heal them. On that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. So imagine Egypt is down here in northern Africa and Assyria is up here in near modern-day Iraq or maybe bordering Iran is as well. And the people of God are really in the middle. And here's what he's saying. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Assyria will go to Egypt, Egypt to Assyria, and Egypt will worship with Assyria. On that day, Israel will form a triple alliance with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing within the land. The Lord of hosts, Yahweh, will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. How can this be? Assyria have just declared war on the nation of Israel and routed them. These are the people whom Jonah had gone to and they did repent and now they have forgotten their repentance and they are under God's wrath and judgment again. But here we see the ultimate plan of God is to bring all of the nations to him. The people of Israel are supposed to be, we saw this last week, people of Israel were there. They were chosen of God, not just so that they alone would be the people of God, but they would be a banner to the world of God's people and the people would be drawn from all nations to the people of God, to that holy hill Jerusalem, to the residing place of Yahweh to worship him. That's why God chose those people. That's why he took them to that promised land so that all people might be blessed through them. That's why they're there. He's drawing people from all nations to himself. And not only have the other nations forgotten, and man, they have seen God's favour. They've seen God's handiwork uh, among them. Uh, again, the Assyrians in Nineveh, um, Syria, directly to the north. Uh, the the like, wicked people of Israel. The Egyptians even. The Moabites are specifically mentioned here as well. And even, even the Moabites, God says, uh, you will weep and you will wail and you will mourn and I love you. People of Israel are supposed to be a beacon of hope to the world as he drew the world towards himself, but they forgot him. They forgot what they were supposed to do. Uh, I put it to you, we, the people of God, uh, we are not Judah, we are not Jerusalem, uh, we are his church, uh, but he has given us this same 
aim and goal. Same aim and goal. We're guilty of the same things. We, we now assume God's favour. We go, well, we're living in one of the most peaceful nations, most prosperous and peaceful nations in the history of the world. We really are. Uh, our, of our five largest cities, five of them, for the last decade, have ranked in the top ten most livable cities in the world. Because Australia is, again, one of the most phenomenal countries to ever have existed. I'm not saying that full of patriotism at all. I'm saying that cautiously, lest we fall into the same... But we have. We have already fallen into the same trap as the Israelites, as people of Judah, as the Assyrians, as the Egyptians, as the Syrians, as the Moabites, uh, the Edomites, of all of these surrounding nations. We've fallen into the same trap of forgetting God. Just wholesale, forgotten Him. Even in the church, we go about doing the same thing that the, Jew, that the uh, people in Jerusalem are called guilty of, saying, yeah, we, just, we, we come up with a good idea and we go and do it. Did we consult God in that? Not even consulting God, but do we go to him first and say, what's your plan? How do I subscribe and submit to your will? We must acknowledge God in our lives. We must. As we acknowledge God in our lives, we point people to that beacon of hope, who is Jesus. The one who has come, as we read in these 10 chapters, the one who's, who's going to come. In fact, he's mentioned in Isaiah 18, in the midst of our 10, uh, 11 chapters here. Um, all you inhabitants of the world... Oh, sorry, no. Let's first look at banners. These banners are raised uh, all over the place. Uh, 18.3, all you inhabitants of the world and you who live on the earth, when a banner is raised on the mountains, look. When a trumpet sounds, listen. And then he goes on to say all the judgment that's coming. Isaiah 13, an oracle against Babylon about Isaiah the son of Amos saw, or that Isaiah the son of Amos saw, lift up a banner on a barren mountain, call out to them, wave your hand, and they will go through the gates of the nobles. I've come out of my chosen ones. I've also called my warriors who exult in my triumph to execute my wrath. Here we see again and again, and we saw last week a banner being raised. We saw in chapter 5 a banner being raised. God is all about those banners. It's all about lifting up so that everybody can see, this is what I'm doing. Come, come here. Sometimes it's come here for judgment. Mostly, it's come here to your hope. Just like Moses in the desert raised up that snake on a pole, that anyone who got bitten by a snake could come and be healed. They lifted up the banner of God. So too was Isaiah pointing to Jesus who would be lifted up on that hill as a banner to the nations again. This is what he says of Jesus in chapter 16 of Isaiah. When the oppressor has gone, destruction has ended, and marauders have vanished from the land. It's when it's all done. Then, in the tent of David, a throne will be established by faithful love. A judge who seeks what is right and is quick to execute justice will sit on the throne forever. So here in the midst of these promises of judgment and the promise of restoration, we see the promise of the ultimate restoration, this ultimate restorative figure, God himself being lifted up as the banner, that God himself would be the banner, that God would be the one that we would point all people to. Like Moses in the desert, 
for anyone who would seek salvation and healing would go and look upon the banner. Here we see the ultimate banner, the better banner is Jesus himself. We must acknowledge God in our lives. If we don't, then we forget the banner. We forget where our hope comes from. We forget where our salvation rests and relies on. We fall into the same trap of pride. And, and I'm, I really mean trap. Pride is a, it's a cage. It's a cell. When you acknowledge God in your lives, uh, when things are good, when it's hard, when it's boring, and when it's spectacular, then you also become a banner of hope. You also become a banner. That God has sent you to the nations to be a banner of hope. You're not the hope. But you're the banner that waves and says, this is where the hope is. I want to say all of the nations. I really mean that. Uh, this is one of those nations. Like Adelaide in Australia is almost as far away from Jerusalem geographically as you can get. It's somewhere like maybe a thousand kilometers east of here, which sounds like a lot, but it's, you know, world scale, that's not a lot. Uh, we're about as far away. We are the ends of the earth that Jesus was talking about. Uh, we're a nation founded, really, as a nation. Um, just over 100 years ago. People have lived here for a lot longer than that, absolutely. Uh, but the gospel message, it's only been here for maybe 200 years. Uh, you're sent to this nation, at least for now. Some of you may be sent to other nations, uh, but you're, you're sent to this nation to be a banner, to, to wave. <clears throat> you know what you don't do with a banner? You don't like wrap it up and store it away. When it's time to wave, when there's something to announce, you unfurl the banner and you wave it high, way up in the air. Like Jesus says in Matthew 5, 15, nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. They put it on a stand. They put it up high. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Uh, you are the, you're the, you're the beacon pointing to the greater beacon. You're the banner pointing to the greater banner. We don't do this when we forget God. We don't do this when pride ensnares our hearts. So here's the question. Here's where we, here's where we land. Uh, where does your hope come from? And, and I don't mean this and when I say this, you know, you have the, the um, Sunday school answer, well, my hope comes from Jesus, obviously. Uh, that's where my hope comes from. And it's very easy for us to have a, like an intellectual ascent or some sort of, <clears throat> um, you know, we, we ascribe to this idea in the abstract that, yes, Jesus came and, and died for me, and so my hope is in him. But I mean, practically, if people look at your life, if people looked at your life, people saw what you run to when times are tough. If people see what you celebrate when times are good, if people see the foundation of your life and then what you're building on that, will that be a banner pointing to the sole hope we have in Jesus? 
This is the one-point sermon. Where does your hope come from? Like, really, have you sat down and actually thought about where does your hope... Are you living in a way that demonstrates, that exemplifies, that shows, that banners, if I can, like, turn it into a verb, if that, that, that beacons uh, your hope in Jesus? Or, like the people of God who are about to be judged, have you sat down and mapped out a great life for yourself with, with great worldly wisdom that people would look at you and go, well, you're being very smart, you're doing this and you're studying hard and you're working hard and you, you're, you're saving and uh, investing and um, being good to people and you, you're giving away, you've been generous and, and doing those things. But are you doing that in a way that people of no faith and no hope in Jesus could do just the same? Are you living out your life and asking God to bless your plans? Or are you going to him and saying, I acknowledge you in all things. What do you want for my life? Now, Hezekiah, he is one of the kings of Judah and he is praised for being strategic and intentional. And he sees the Assyrians coming and so he builds a tunnel. Uh, and so he, he makes... Uh, he, he still is strategic and he does do these things and he makes plans. I'm not knocking making plans, but he does this in a way that acknowledges God. And so two things from two different people can look identical. One is being judged, one is being praised. Consider your life and where does your hope come from? Are you living out of pride? And the flip side of pride is fear, which is still just pride. Or are you living out of the hope that comes from God? And does your life operate as a beacon to that hope? Let's pray together. Father God, we, I mean, we are a beacon of hope. Uh, we want to be good beacons. We want to be good banners. We want to be effective uh, in this so great a call that you have put upon, our, put upon us and put upon our lives. Thank you so much for the amazing and wondrous work of Jesus who was lifted high as the great banner of hope, who is the great hope of all nations that we look to, that we acknowledge. We acknowledge you in everything, in all things. Father, we acknowledge that we are prideful and prone to being prideful. Would you help us to to kill all pride in us. We wouldn't look to our own devices. We wouldn't rely and rest in our own wisdom, in our own fortune, even in our own peaceful country, lest we be like Israel under Jeroboam uh, within a generation being routed, or lest we be like the Assyrians who within one lifetime go from repentance to forgetting um, to destroy and judged. Father, help us. We're in such a desperate, great need of your help and we're also so confident that you'll give us that help, that you have given us that help. Keep us inclined to your Holy Spirit. May we maintain a, like a disposition of repentance for the ways in which we have not done this well. We're sorry for how we haven't done this well as a church. There's times we haven't done this well 
as individuals and as families in your church. Father, help our light to shine brightly as we point to Jesus. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.